Last time we spoke about the fall of Attu. The Americans had to fight both the Japanese and a very cruel mother nature to claim the frigid island of Attu. The Americans gradually seized every hill, ridge, and razor edge crest as they pushed the Japanese into Chichigov Harbor. Once the Japanese had their backs to the sea and nowhere left to run, Colonel Yamazaki decided they would go out in a blaze of glory. Nearly 1,000 screaming Japanese performed a suicidal banzai charge towards the American artillery positions, hoping to unleash the enemy guns upon them. Yamazaki received an M1 Garin bullet, as the rest of his men killed themselves en masse, clutching grenades to their chests. It was a horrifying conclusion fit to make the last samurai Saigo Takamori proud. Now the Americans turned their gaze back east upon the isolated island of Kiska. This episode is the Rice Bowl Campaign. Hey, welcome back to the Pacific War week-by-week -week podcast. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released an episode on the Hangu Twin Incident of 1928, that being the assassination of Zhang Zhou Lin. And hey, just a friendly reminder, I now have a Patreon account myself, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And this month's exclusive podcast over there is part two of my series on General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident, and the author behind the Final War Theory. Please check it out. It mean a lot to me. We left off with the fall of Atu to the Americans. Colonel Yamazaki's doomed garrison made one last banzai charge into oblivion, leaving piles of their dead all over the island. The Americans had suffered substantial casualties making the Battle of Attu the costliest ground battle as of now fought in the Pacific. In the words of General Buckner, The Japanese proved to be a tough fighter, with great physical endurance and fortitude. He was not afraid to die. A number of lessons were learnt from the battle, including new landing techniques, and the necessity for rubberized, thoroughly waterproofed boots. As you see, the men on Attu had been given expensive, thick and insulated leather hunting boots, but these became absolutely useless when soaked in water. I imagine many of you are Americans, and maybe not from uh, the northern states that actually receive some snow. I am from Quebec, and I will tell you right now, I have a good story about what happens when you go out in terrible weather like this with leather boots. Like most dumb Canadian teenagers, I was out drinking with some friends, out in the woods, um, actually. And yeah, I probably did that for about, I don't know, six hours. Came home, and uh, yeah, my toe was black. Literally, I shoved a fork in it. Couldn't feel it. And yeah, that is a complete result of the boots getting wet, and me being too drunk to notice. Luckily, I did not lose my toe. So, thankfully for myself, and for the brave men on that too, they would later get improved winter kits. 
and cases of hypothermia, frostbite, or trench foot would become very rare among American soldiers even during other bitterly cold campaigns like that in Italy and France. The Americans also learned how masterful the Japanese were at creating concealed defensive works and infiltration tactics. The American forces got to see firsthand how weather and terrain could pose the greatest threat to success. The Hourglass Division, owing to its initial desert training, was not prepared for ATU conditions, which demanded cold weather and mountain warfare expertise, and clothing and equipment. In addition to being inadequately clothed, they failed to take care of themselves on the battlefield. The 7th Provisional Scout Battalion was only able to muster 40 men to walk after five days of action. In contrast, the 30-man detachment of Alaska scouts, recruited because of their outdoor skills and experience in Alaska conditions, well, they lost one man killed in action, two wounded, and one man with a slight case of trench foot. These types of lessons would prove very useful in future operations. To point out just a two like I have before, the future Italian and French campaigns, which did hold some cold territories. Now, as the Battle of Atu was coming to a close, Tokyo issued a directive on May the 21st for the evacuation of Kiska's 6,000-man garrison, led by Rear Admiral Akiyama Manso. The evacuation was going to be done using 13 I-class submarines from the 1st Submarine Squadron of Rear Admiral Kode Takeo. But by early June, Takeo would already realize the danger of using his force for such a task, as one of his submarines would be sunk at Atu. There was a call to use surface ships, if the weather permitted it, and continuous calls to rush over to evacuate the Atu garrison. But the American naval blockade put an end to that idea. And worse now, it seemed the northern Kurils were in danger. Now Tokyo sought the deployment of fighters and anti-aircraft units to provide air defense and shore batteries to thwart any amphibious invasions of the Kurils. The Japanese had a daunting task laid out before them. In contrast to the relatively weak American naval forces deployed at the Battle of Kamandorsky Islands, Admiral Kincaid's blockade and bombardment forces included the trio of older battleships, the Mississippi, Idaho, and New Mexico, a quintet of cruisers, Louisville, Portland, San Francisco, Santa Fe, and Wichita, and nine destroyers. This powerful fleet showed up on July the 19th under the joint command of Rear Admirals Robert C. Giffen and Robert M. Griffin. Very close names there, by the way, that messed up my head a bit. Other destroyers and submarine chasers were operating in separate smaller commands within the region as well. Admiral Kawase Shiro took over IGN operations in the Aleutians and North Pacific following Hosegaya's removal from command, and thus found himself stuck with rescuing Kiska's garrison from the teeth of a very powerful American blockade. Lacking the fleet strength to punch a hole in the blockade, Kawase would have to turn to submarines. The 12 submarines under Takeo were Type Cs, heavily armed with torpedoes, deck guns, and measuring about 358 feet long. Kawase's first plan was to try and slip the submarines through the blockade, but despite being large, the submarines could barely carry about 150 men each. Thus, it would require 40 successful journeys to remove the entire garrison. With most American warships now equipped with sonar, this represented a hell of a risk, forcing Kawase to look towards other options. While the submarines would make runs as soon as possible, Kawase had to plan a surface evacuation. The Japanese submarine evacuation of Kiska began on May the 27th, with the first submarine, the I-7, arriving at Kiska with food, ammunition, and a radio beacon. 
She could only carry 60 passengers, which was reserved for the sick and wounded alongside 28 boxes of ashes for those who had died on the island, and 4 tons of spent shell cartridges. A few more submarines managed to make the trek and evacuated a few hundred men from Kiska, but then the Japanese luck changed for the worse. The I-24, captained by Hanabusa Hiroshi, entered Kiska Harbor in early June, taking aboard 150 soldiers. On the night of the 10th, she was trying to slip away, but as she was passing 40 miles north of Shemina Island, American sonar aboard the USS Larchmont, a submarine chaser, pinged. Lieutenant Wallace Cornell ordered his crew to depth charge the enemy submarine, tossing five of them straight into the water. The Americans blasted the I-24 to the surface. Then Cornell ordered the Larchmont to put the pedal to the metal, flooring the 450-ton subchaser to ram the 2,554-ton I-24. The Larchmont rode up and over the submarine, splashing into the sea on the far side. Upon seeing they failed to ram her, Cornell's men began pounding the vulnerable I-24 with shells, before turning around to try and ram her again. This time, the Larchmont smashed into I-24's coning tower, fatally damaging the submarine. She sank stern-first into the black, frigid sea, killing her 104-man crew and the 150 soldiers she was bearing. Three days later, the destroyer USS Fraser sank the I-31, taking down her entire crew and the 150 soldiers that she was evacuating. Out of the 800 total men the submarine forces got off the island, 300 of them had died to American attacks. As the summer would continue, combat and operational losses would see the destruction of eight out of the original 13 submarines, leaving Takeo with just five. Kawase recognized the futility of the submarine operation, and he was forced to turn to his surface plan, which would unfold in late July. Now, while all this was going on, the Americans invaded the islands of Shemna and Gagatu. Brigadier General John Copeland led elements of General Buckner's 4th Regiment and Colonel Talley's 18th Engineers to land in Shemna during a really tough storm. The Americans quickly surveyed the island to see if they could construct an airfield to accommodate a brand new experimental aircraft. And might I add, it is the most iconic one of the Pacific War. The B-29 Super Fortress Heavy Bomber. She had been in the works since 1938, and her objective would soon be long-range bombing missions against the Japanese home islands. It is actually interesting that we're talking about this right now, because on my personal channel, I did an interview with somebody you might know, Dave from the Cold War channel. I'm pretty sure by the time this episode is released, that episode should be up on my personal channel. The subject matter was about the firebombing campaign against the Japanese home islands and how it evolved during the Cold War. A lot of it has to do with the development and history behind the B-29 Super Fortress. Honestly, it was a great podcast. Dave is awesome. I really implore you to, uh, to go watch it or listen to it. It'll be on all the major podcast platforms. And of course, check out Dave over at the Cold War channel because his channel is awesome. Now, with their usual blinding speed, the American engineers made the Atu Air Station operational by June the 8th, then Shemna's two weeks later. Alongside this, the 11th Air Force would be reinforced with a squadron of new PV-1 Ventura bombers, equipped with the latest airborne radar, which was capable of giving a clear picture of topographical contours that would be extremely useful while flying through the Arctic weather and at night. Admiral Kincaid would likewise shuffle his ships around to improve the blockade, and General Butler's Air Force would spend most of June smashing Kiska with bombs. They would fly a total of 407 bombing sorties, 
though the Japanese arsenal of 70 anti-aircraft batteries would give them a hell of a time doing so. Completely uncontested, the Americans would make unopposed landings at Semisomo Chupoi and the Rat Islands, covered only by PT boats. With these newly acquired airfields such as Atu and Shemna, and the new aircraft on hand, the Americans were in sufficient range to bomb Peromishiro, Japan's Gibraltar-like base guarding its northern approach. The first raid against Peromishiro would occur on July the 10th, with six B-24s launched from Atu, but suddenly getting redirected to hit four Japanese wooden transports trying to break through the naval blockade for Kiska. Although the American pilots successfully sunk two of them, they would not have enough fuel to continue on and hit Peromishiro. Another attempt would be made on July the 18th, seeing six B-24s inflicting some minimal damage upon Peromishiro. But it showed the Japanese that their home soil was no longer safe from American bombers. Tokyo was forced to reinforce the Kurils and Hokkaido, taking up valuable resources in men, guns, ships, aircraft, and such from other places that needed it like the Solomons. Because of their large success, Buckner and Kincaid saw significant budget increases, and now the Joint Chiefs of Staff were seriously thinking about invading the Japanese home islands from the Aleutians. They went as far as to create actual plans, with 1945 designated as the year they would invade Japan. But now we are shifting away from the North Pacific to dive back into the situation of the Second Sino-Japanese War. The last time we were in China, the Battle of West Hubei was raging on, with the 11th Army of General Yokoyama invading south of the Yangtze River. Now, Yokoyama would press on against the southwest portion of Yuchang, where the Chinese 11th Division was defending the Shipai Fortress. The 18th Division was at Changyang, and the 24th and 36th Independent Engineer Battalions were at Yuyangquan. The Chinese 11th Division was led by General Hu Lian, who held a considerably well-defended fortress at Shipai, but also its approach, which was the dangerous Xiling Gorge. All combined, they defended the approach to Chongqing and Sichuan province. Because of its vital importance, Commander Chen Chang ordered Hu Lian to defend the Shipai fortress to the death. By May the 18th, the second phase of the IJ operation came to its conclusion. Thus, Yokoyama decided to concentrate his 13th division near Chenchewan and his 3rd Division, backed by the Nozai Detachment near Xuangqingxi. This was in preparation for the third phase of the operation, a final drive against the Chinese defenses between Yichang and Yidu. The IJ 13th Division began to move north while the 3rd and Nozai Detachment advanced south of Yichang to cross the Qingjiang River. The Japanese found many Chinese defensive positions along the way, but by this point the Chinese had been so brutally battered over the past month, they were still dazed and confused, thus they were easily brushed aside. The 18th Army would manage to hinder the Japanese advance, forcing Yokoyama to redirect three battalions of the 39th Division to join the offensive. By May the 22nd, the 39th forded the Yangtze River and joined up with the 3rd and Nozai Detachment to assault Changyang. As the Japanese forces approached the Shipai Fortress from three different directions, Commander Chen Cheng and General Sun Yangzhong tossed the 94th and 32nd Armies to try and stop the Japanese advance at Yuyangquan. Chen Cheng's plan was to box in Yokoyama's forward units at Yuyangquan, but instead the Japanese began dispersing and they clashed with the Chinese 18th Army at Chanyang, alongside Yuyangquan by May the 23rd. The defenders still jarred from the offensives were routing left, right, and center. 
Fortunately, the Chinese would manage to pull themselves together to reorganize a new defensive position to the right of the Shipai Fortress. Their last line of defense was to be at Muqiaoqi, in front of Chongqing and Sichuan. It was held by the 34th Division. The Japanese were relentless as they continued their advance and by the end of May the 26th they reached the defensive line. At this point, Yokoyama had achieved his objectives, as the vessels at Yuchang were now advancing towards Yuyang without facing any resistance. He quickly ordered 53 steamers to navigate the river on the 27th, but they were met with an unexpected enemy, Major General Chenault's Flying Tigers. During May of 1943, as we have seen, the Japanese launched a ground offensive targeting areas like the Dongdongting Lake and the Yangtze River region. The objectives were clear to the Allies. The Japanese were seizing the colloquial termed Rice Bowl region right during the harvest season. As the ground fighting intensified, it became clear that the Chinese land forces desperately needed aerial support. To counter the Japanese, the recently created 14th Air Force as of March the 10th of 1943, led by Chenault and the Chinese 4th Air Group, tossed P-40Es and P-43s to try and support the Chinese ground forces. On May the 14th, Japanese reconnaissance covering Quilin and Lingling Estimated the U.S. order of battle was about 24 P-40s, 8 B-24s, 3 B-25s, 1 P-38, and 1 P-43. It was also noted the Chinese had advanced to Liangshan, where the 4th Air Group was located. The 4th Air Group went into action by May the 19th with 8 P-40Es, 4 P-43s, alongside some A-29 Hudson bombers. The Chinese bombed the Japanese ground forces, meeting some intense anti-aircraft gunfire coming back at them. Deputy Group Commander Xu Baoyun, flying a P-40E, was shot down by Japanese anti-aircraft gunfire in the process. The next morning, the Japanese bombed Liangshan by surprise giving the 4th Air Group no chance to retaliate. From May the 19th to June the 6th, the Chinese Air Forces would fly 336 fighter and 88 bomber sorties over the battle zone, claiming to have shot down 31 Japanese aircraft in the process. The 4th Air Group missed their chance to confront the Japanese on May the 29th when they flew from Langshan to cover Chongqing due to a false alarm. While they were absent, 10 Japanese fighters strafed the field, followed an hour later by 9 Japanese bombers with fighter escorts. On May the 31st, 9 P-43s escorting 5 A-29s attacked a ferry crossing between Yuchang and Yudu, but in doing so, they would miss the most intense action of the air campaign. For on the same day, Lieutenant Colonel John Allison, an American ace alongside two United States Air Force wingmen, led 7 P-40s from the 4th Air Group to escort 9 B-24 bombers over Yuchang. It was Allison's last mission in China, and the ace hoped to add to his record of kills. The Allied Air Force bombed and strafed Japanese ground forces, but also got into dogfights with Japanese air forces. Allison's aircraft was badly shot up by Captain Otsubo Yasuto, the leader of the 1st Chotai Squadron of the 33rd. Lieutenant Sang Sulan, nicknamed Bulldog, took his number 2304 P 40 to swing behind Otsubo as he was firing upon Allison and he managed to shoot his aircraft down, saving Allison's life in the process. Tsung was awarded an American Silver Star and the highest medals China could offer for this. On June the 6th, 14 K-43s and 8 light bombers attacked Liangshan. 13 Chinese P-40s led by Colonel Li Huxiangyang were returning from a mission to Liangshan and were landing as the Japanese approached. 
Captain Chao Qingkai, commander of the 23rd Squadron and a veteran of many years of combat, directed the ground crews to take defensive measures, and then apparently he climbed into a P-66 Vanguard. Without any time to adjust his parachute, check his fuel, nor even buckle his seatbelt, he gunned the engine. While the Japanese strafed the field, Chao went directly for the bombers, claiming to take three down. Chao received the Blue Sky White Sun Award personally from Chiang Kai-shek for his actions. Yet despite his heroism, 12 P-40s and a fleet trainer were destroyed on the grounds of Liangshan. What became known as the Rice Bowl Campaign took a heavy toll on the CAF. In addition to their losses in combat and on the ground, suffered most by P-40s, many other aircraft suffered from operational damage. After the campaign, the operational CAF aircrafts would number 6 out of 7 A-29s, 5 out of 10 SB-3s, 3 out of 5 P-40Es, 6 out of 9 P-43s, and 39 out of 46 P-66. The 14th Air Force played a small role overall in the Rice Bowl campaign, and thus their losses were quite minimal. Meanwhile at the Shupai Fortress, Julian faced direct attacks from the IGA 68th Regiment on May the 28th. He was told to fight to the death. The defenders managed to repel each enemy assault, inflicting significant casualties upon the invaders. Julian would personally lead the troops at all times in their efforts to dig in and build fortifications. To the right flank, the 3rd and 39th Divisions charged against new positions manned by exhausted soldiers of the 18th Army, who resisted as much as they could. However, they were simply outmatched. For the full might of two Japanese divisions and soon two Chinese companies were annihilated as the rest pulled back. General Lo Guangwen of the 18th Chinese Division boldly decided to counterattack, launching a rain of grenade and motor fire over the 3rd and 39th Divisions, halting their advance. Although aided by artillery and aerial bombardment, the Japanese were still pressing hard against the defenders. The Chinese 94th and 32nd Armies then arrived to the scene, and the 94th Army went to work successfully blocking the advance of the 13th Division near Dianxiang. This forced the Japanese to cross the dangerous Tianzhu Mountain, which would claim much of their equipment. Further down the road, the 13th Division was ambushed by concealed forces of the 32nd Army, managing to inflict hundreds of casualties upon them. Because of the increased losses, Yokoyama ordered the Noji Detachment at Yuchang to cross the Yangtze to assault Chupai Fortress frontally in a last-ditch effort to break Hulian's lines. On the 29th, the Noji Detachment launched its attack, breaking through Hulian's line at Chiaotianping, inflicting severe casualties upon the 11th Division, which was forced to retreat towards the bay. By the end of the 29th, the 18th Army's other units were also withdrawing leaving Hulian alone to face the brunt of the enemy's advance. But by this point, the Japanese had suffered tremendous losses, and the steamers at Yuxiang had already arrived to Shuzhou. Thus, Yokoyama feared he was overstretched, and that his forces might get trapped by Chinese units moving towards Tianyang. Thus, not wanting to see things fall apart, Yokoyama ordered an end to the operation on the 29th, and he prepared his forces for withdrawal. But the next day, the 13th Division decided to press an attack upon Muchiaochi, not knowing the 32nd Army had set up another ambush for them there. The Chinese unleashed artillery on the Japanese, inflicting more casualties on the already battered division. Meanwhile, the isolated 11th Division was repelling the combined attacks of the 3rd and 39th Divisions, repelling 10 consecutive attacks throughout the day, leaving the Bay Area full of dead Japanese. On the 31st, the Japanese began their withdrawal as more and more Chinese reinforcements were arriving for a massive counterattack. 
Well, the 3rd and 39th Divisions managed to avoid battles as they crossed the Yangtze at Yuchang. The battered 13th Division was heading towards Yudu and was trapped by the 32nd Army at Chanyang by the June the 3rd. The 13th Division would manage to break free and flee towards Goan. But the division which was earmarked to depart for the Pacific lost so many men they would be forced to remain in China. Yokoyama was forced to send the 17th Independent Mixed Brigade, who had already managed to withdraw to Shuzhou, to rescue the 13th Division. They arrived to Goan on June the 5th and fought a long series of battles to help the remnants of the 13th Division limp back to Shuzhou by June the 8th. With the Japanese operation concluded, Commander Chen Cheng and General Sun Lianzhong would successfully recapture most of the lost territory and begin rebuilding defensive lines as they did so. The Japanese claimed to have suffered 3,500 casualties with 771 deaths and 2,746 wounded, though it should be noted other sources claim their losses were considerably higher. As the 13th Division was practically destroyed, the 17th Mixed Brigade, 3rd, and 39th Divisions were also severely damaged, indicating losses possibly in the tens of thousands. The losses were so grave, the Japanese would not be able to start another offensive in China until the end of the year. Thus, the gateway to Chongqing and Sichuan province were held, paraded as a grand victory by the Chinese. But as I indicated in a previous episode, historians such as Barbara W. Tuckman suggest, quote, the Japanese withdrew without pursuit from what appeared to have been a training and foraging offensive to collect rice and river shipping. In other words, the Rice Bowl campaign, as it became known, basically saw the Japanese stealing the bowl of rice for 1943. Now we are not quite done just yet. There is some action going on in the Solomons. The Japanese had just conducted Operation Ego, and despite their pilots' extremely over-exaggerated claims, it truly was a lackluster offensive. Alongside this, the legendary Admiral Isaruku Yamamoto had been assassinated on April the 18th, shattering Japanese morale. Nonetheless, the show had to go on, as they say, and now Admiral Kuzaka would need to reorganize, repair, and reinforce his air forces in preparation for a next expected American offensive in the Solomons. Kuzaka was reinforced with the 12th Air Fleet, consisting of the 24th and 27th Air Flotillas. The 11th Air Fleet, meanwhile, would be reinforced with the 25th Air Flotilla, holding 60 Zeros, 10 J1N1s, and 50 J4Ms. Kuzaka's 26th Air Flotilla, who should have been relieved, would be forced to fight on for the duration of the campaign against Rabaul, but the 21st Air Flotilla would be sent to Saipan for rehabilitation. Now, since the evacuation of Guadalcanal, the Japanese had created a new defensive line with Ricada Bay being the hub for the Santa Isabel defensive line, and Munda being the hub for New Georgia, with its forward point at Wickham Anchorage. This meant the forward bases needed to be reinforced, so Santa Isabel received the 7th Combined Special Naval Landing Force of Rear Admiral Katsuno Minoru, consisting of the Kure 7th SNLF and the 3rd Battalion of the 23rd Regiment. New Georgia received the 2nd Battalion, 229th Regiment of Captain Iwabuchi Sanji, the 41st Anti-Aircraft Battalion, the 4th, 10th, and 22nd Construction Units, who went to Munda, the 1st Battalion, 229th Regiment, and 1st Machine Gun Company, who would go on to Wickham Anchorage. Kuzaka envisioned the main defensive force to be Rear Admiral Oto Minoru's 8th Combined SNLF. This consisted of the Kuri 6th and Yokozuka 7th, who had been recently converted into heavy artillery units originally set for hitting the Americans on Guadalcanal. Other support 
rifle companies, and heavy weapons companies made up the rest of the SNLF force. By late January, Oda's force began its movement to New Georgia, arriving to Munda by the end of the month, though a large airstrike rocked them on January the 29th, sinking 75 barges loaded with valuable cargo. The Japanese sent various forces to occupy Villa and Rakata Bay in January, where bases would be developed. On February the 27th, Choiso Coast Watchers spotted the Kirakawamaru, carrying two 14cm guns, four 8cm dual-purpose guns, 600 tons of ammunition and supplies, and SNLF personnel as the ship and its two escorts cleared the shortlands. A PBY and the Coast Watchers reported their course, and a commercial strike force of 14 SBDs with an escort of 24 fighters caught them three miles off the northeast tip of Vela La Vela. The American fighters took on the 13 Zeros and two F-1Ms flying cover, and in the fight that followed, each side lost two aircraft. The SBDs went about their business with deadly effect. A surviving Japanese medical officer later wrote that the bombs were exploding in the ship like fireworks at the Rogoku Bridge in Tokyo. This would force the Japanese to yet again rely on the good old Tokyo Express, much to their dismay. Alongside that, the Battle of Blackett Strait on March the 6th forced the Japanese to avoid the Kula Gulf and instead opt for the Ferguson Passage. Through March to May, the Japanese would suffer only one loss, the sea truck Gishomaru. Thus, the new route seemed to be quite successful. However, with all the shuffling by both sides, it seemed evident a new bloody campaign was about to be unleashed in the Solomons. Hey, I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I've just unleashed a meme-filled episode about the Hongwutuan incident, that is, the assassination of Zhang Zoulin. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And this month's exclusive podcast over there is part two of my series about General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident and the author behind the final war theory. Please check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The Japanese struck hard into the heart of China's rice bowl region. Both the Chinese and Japanese lost significant amounts of men to the bloody campaign. Chongqing and Sichuan province were both safe. But in the end, the Japanese had secured their objectives.